This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from AJ+, the Tom Hartman Program, the Majority Report, Talk Poverty Radio, Backstory, the David Pakman Show, Democracy Now!, the Young Turks, and activism from the Fight for 15 campaign. Is the United States still the land of opportunity? Honestly, not anymore. Because the American dream relies on the one thing this country is killing, the middle class. Being middle class today means you earn between forty dollars and $122,000 a year, depending on where you live. You're not poor, but nor are you rich. You're getting by. Back in the 1960s, over half of American households were middle class. But that middle class has been shrinking ever since. Today, the median income is less than it was in 1989. But the cost of living, of course, keeps going up. In just the last 15 years, the cost of housing, health care, child care, and college have all skyrocketed. That means people are working longer hours for less pay just to keep the lights on. How has it gotten to this? Let's start with unions, those organizations that workers belong to so they don't get screwed by management. The United States has historically had some of the strongest unions, but in the last 30 years, membership has nosedived. Back in the 1950s, more than a third of private sector workers belonged to a union. Today, that number stands at 7%. Check out the share of income the middle class takes home compared to union membership. Weaker unions, weaker middle class. Without bargaining power, it's no wonder that the federal minimum wage has also fallen. So what happened? A defining moment was in 1981, when 13,000 air traffic controllers went on strike. President Ronald Reagan responded by firing them. All of them. This action put the U.S. government squarely on the side of management, emboldening execs to go after unions. Since then, there have been waves of laws passed by states that weaken union membership, which corporations take advantage of by relocating to states that have weaker unions and fewer labor laws. That's if they stay in the country at all. Why are there fewer and fewer good-paying jobs? We're often told that technology has a lot to do with it. And yes, since the 1970s, millions of manufacturing jobs have been lost to automation. But that's just part of the story. You know those boring trade agreements that get negotiated in secret? Well, pay attention. Because while they're touted as being great for growth, they've also hurt American workers. The U.S. lost nearly 700,000 jobs, mostly in manufacturing, thanks to NAFTA. And while China is a favorite scapegoat, it's the United States that opened the doors to trade without properly protecting its industry or workers. In five years, 1.8 million jobs were lost as companies moved abroad or decided to import cheaper goods. Who knew the American dream included lobbyists? Today, the biggest corporations have armies of lobbyists who make sure that things go the way of big business in Washington. And they spend $2.6 billion a year to do just that. That's 34 times the amount that unions and public interest groups spend. And it's totally legal. So is keeping your profits offshore in order to avoid paying American taxes. That's what most Fortune 500 companies do. About those taxes, in 40 years, the top 0.1% actually saw their taxes cut in half, whereas the middle class is paying more. Many conservatives argue that rising tides lift all boats, that if the rich make more money, eventually it'll benefit the rest of us. 
But has that actually happened? Yes, the economy is doing better since the Great Recession, but overall, the rich are getting richer while the majority of Americans keep getting poorer. Governor of Illinois. This is astonishing. I, you know, I, I, I grew up in Michigan. I, I'm very familiar with Illinois politics. I, you know, Louise and I used to spend a fair amount of time in Chicago, but uh, it's been a lot of years. And I have not been closely following Illinois politics. I did not realize that uh, Governor Bruce Rauner, the new Republican governor of Illinois, spent... $27 million of his own money to get elected? Really? Now, to be fair, this is a guy who was making $25,000 an hour. He was making in an hour what the average worker in America makes in a year, roughly. And now he has, with just blatant lies. Now he has decided that he's going to go after the unions. This, it, it, there, is a, there is a long backstory here that goes back to the 1930s where unions had, in the early 1930s, you know, during the Great Depression, unions had virtually no legal powers and very little political power. They were starting to organize. You had the, you know, the Flint sick down strike. You had all, you know, and, and going back through the, the, the robber baron era, the late 1880s, for the 40 years prior, 50 years prior to the 1930s, there had been a lot of attempts to unionize. There had been some successful, some mostly unsuccessful. There had been a lot of, of uh, murders of union members. There were, there, you know, union members who were regularly beaten. This is how you know Walter Ruther made made his uh, chops by by uh, by being beaten up and standing next to I believe there was badly beaten for a for a newspaper photo that kind of went all over the country you know blood all over. back in either the late twenties or early thirties. So in nineteen thirty five, we we the people of the United States got the right to unionize. If more than half of us in a workplace decided to vote in favor of having a union represent us, then that union represented us. Pretty straightforward stuff, democracy in the workplace. I keep saying we have to consider the marketplace as a power. Bruce Rauner making $25,000 an hour, spending $27 million of his own money to get himself elected governor of, California, of, uh, of Illinois. This is power. The Supreme Court would have you think that money is speech. It's not. It's power. 
And the only kind of power in our economy and our form of government that can stand up to the power of multimillionaires like Bruce Rauner, people who, who can spend $27 million of their own money just to get elected governor, just because, hey, that'd be fun. There are only two powers in the United States that can stand up to the power of billionaires and big corporations. Only two. And the conservative movement, which is basically the front group for billionaires and big corporations, and generally conservatives are not embarrassed to admit that. There's no shortage of conservative books that lay that out, starting in 1951 with a conservative mind. So here we have the governor of Illinois going after the unions. Now here's how, here's how this works. In 1935, when unions were established, and if you are a uh, union lawyer or a union representative and I get any of this wrong, feel free to call me and correct me because I'm running on memory here, but I think I've got it right. I've, I've written about this in two of my books. I'm pretty sure I've got it right. 1935, the majority of people vote for a union. Boom, they've got the union and the federal government through the National Labor Relations Board, the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, 1935, will protect their right to unionize. And the employer then has to negotiate with them. That is one of the two powers that can push back against organized money or big money, is a union. The other power is government. Government can push back against the power of big money and big, big, uh, you know, big corporations. That's it. Those are the only two places that you and I, an average, average person can go and say, please help me. This billionaire or this corporation is trying to screw me. Your union or your government. And so over the last 35, 40 years, and really longer than that, because you can, you can position the starting point of this in 1946. Conservatives have reached out to seize control of or destroy, diminish the power of government and unions, because those are the only two things that can constrain the oligarchs, the rich people, the billionaires and the corporations. And that's what Bruce Rauner, the, the new governor of Illinois, is doing. Now, the way it works with unions, in 1935, you joined a union, you paid dues to that union. The union could use those dues both to cover its own expenses and for lobbying and things like that. Well, the Republicans didn't like that at all. So in 1947, they passed a law called Taft-Hartley that said, if you don't want your union to be using your money for political activity, you can simply say so and they have to refund or not take from you in the first place the amount of money that they use for their political action committees. And frankly, there's a lot of people who are union members who watch Fox News all day and, and disagree with the politics of their union, and they say to the union, I'm not going to give you any money for political activity. Which leaves the other half of what unions do, which is negotiate contracts. Now, in these so-called right-to-work states that came along with, with Taft-Hartley in 1947, now this has been interpreted by the Supreme Court and by legislators over the years that in, in open shops, you don't even necessarily have to join the union. 
These are called so-called free riders. You don't even join the union. But the union's still negotiating on your behalf, so you have to pay a small due to the union to pay for the lawyers and the negotiators. It's pretty straightforward. It's got nothing to do with politics. So what perfidious and vicious and awful lie is Bruce Rauner telling? He says, and I quote, he told this to the Chicago Sun-Times, Forced union dues are a critical cog in the corrupt bargain that is crushing taxpayers. Government union bargaining and government union political activity are inexorably linked. An employee who is forced to pay unfair shared uh, to pay unfair shared dues is being forced to fund political activity with which they disagree. This is a clear violation of First Amendment rights and something that is governor I'm duty bound to correct. He is lying. The governor of Illinois is lying. And he's doing it so that he can destroy unions. Why? Because unions and the power of government, when it's not seized by conservatives like Rauner, are the only two things that stand between your life being destroyed by somebody like Mitt Romney shipping it over your job overseas and keeping things here. For such a nuisance, tell me what good are they? Everything comes down to money, and they don't pay their way. Jonathan Swift proposed it. I'm just saying what he said before. Think of the money we can save if we eat the poor. Let's eat the poor. Let's feed the people, people. It solves many problems, and it can't be done any cheaper. We all know that Paul Ryan is the new Speaker of the House, and it's been incredible to watch him morph from right-wing wonderkind and this sort of delusional notion in the mainstream press. I mean, in 2011, you had people like Ezra Klein saying that Paul Ryan was a real genuine policy wonk who really wanted to solve problems, even though he's never been anything other than a meathead Ayn Rand who wants to destroy, destroy the social safety net. That's it. No more, no less. He's a right-wing extremist. Um, but they have gotten so tonally extreme, not not in terms of substance. There's no real difference between him and the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party Caucus and the We Don't Want Black People to Be President Caucus or whatever the fuck their various names are. Paul Ryan is a far-right extremist. He always has been, and he's a new Speaker of the House. And um, there was a brief moment where he wasn't really talking much where I felt bad for him for a second because he's never going to be president and it's going to be a terrible job. And we all know that a major part of the precondition for him being president was I need to spend time with my family. I need to be Speaker of the House, but I, I need to have plenty of time to watch my kids' sports games and spend time with my wife. And, you know, I need a good work-life balance. He sounded like just so French, the way he said that. So European. And shockingly, I mean, a lot of people have pointed this out uh, right out of the gate, that uh, does Paul Ryan's need for family time 
extend to any type of empathy for other people who might need family time? Might that mean he's shifted his policy about paid family leave? Well, of course not. But this past Sunday on Fox News, John Roberts, of all people, actually asked our new Speaker of the House whether or not his obsessive need to spend time with his family uh, has has uh, transferred to empathy and compassion for other Americans who aren't in government-subsidized jobs like him, or even other Americans who are also in government's, government jobs. Uh, let's play that sound. In, in saying that you would accept the speakership, uh, Mr. Speaker, you said that you wouldn't take the job if it interferes with your family time, which has opened up a national conversation about the importance of spending time with your family. And there are many people in this country who would like to see you make your first priority legislation that gives people the backing of the federal government so that they can have time with their families. Would you make that one of your So I don't think people ask me to be speaker so that I can take more money from hardworking taxpayers to create some new federal entitlement. But I think people want to have members of Congress that represent them, that are like them. Don't you want your member of Congress to be a citizen legislator who lives with you, among you, who, who has your own kinds of concerns, who, who, who wants to spend time with his children on Saturdays and Sundays? I'm going to keep living in Janesville, Wisconsin, where I'm from, where I raised my family. I'm going to keep going back and forth to D.C. And yes, Sundays are going to be family days, and Saturdays are family and constituent days. That, I think, is what most people want in their life, is a balance. So if you're asking me, because I want to spend, uh, I want to continue being the best dad and husband and speaker I can be, getting that work-life balance correct means I should sign up for some new unfunded entitlement? That doesn't make any sense to me. So there we have it. Uh, Meathead Ayn Rand pivots there, and what he's basically saying is that what Congress should be is basically like some type of weird version of uh, film or television where it's wish fulfillment. So I can get really happy even though I work two different jobs, don't have enough money to stay home when my kid is sick from school, can't take a risk of taking a vacation, can't have uh, any guaranteed paid uh, vacation time, and it disrupts my family life and hurts my ability to raise my kids. But what I want is not so much a congressman helping me have the ability to have paid uh, leave so that I can have a family life, and as Paul Ryan so sweetly calls it, a work-life balance. No, what I want is I want to see my congressman doing that. I don't want it myself. I would just like the pleasure and the wish fulfillment of knowing that while I pull into my shift at Walmart and knowing that I'm not going to see my kids for another 10 hours and just trying to make the bills work and everything else, I can know that somewhere in Janesville, Wisconsin, Paul Ryan is drinking a protein shake and giving his kids a shoulder ride. What a scumbag. What a dirtbag. What a meathead Ayn Rand, and what a perfect leader for this sociopathic Republican caucus. Let's go to the river. Let's go to the creek. Let's go down in the water. Cool up this hot week. 
Today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm. Howl is a brand new app and website that is putting a brand new spin on podcasts. To put it simply, it's like Netflix, but for podcasts. With Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to dozens of audio documentaries, comedy albums, all of the archives of WTF with Mark Marin, and all of the Earwolf shows like Comedy Bang Bang. But the real standouts are their original miniseries. This week, they're featuring a new kind of comedy storytelling show. Basically, a bunch of comedians get together to reimagine works of classic literature and produce an audio play of the story they've created. So you can listen to the Red Badge of Courage in only 45 minutes. You're just not going to want to use any of those details in that book report you're working on. So to access this and a whole bunch of other exclusive content on your iPhone, Android phone, and on the web is only $4.99 a month. But when you sign up, you can use the offer code LEFT to get a full month for free so you can really explore their offerings before committing. To redeem the offer code, make sure you create your account on the web at howl.fm and enter the code LEFT at checkout. So go to howl.fm, that's H-O-W-L dot F-M, and use the promo code LEFT for one month free trial of Howl Premium. Kmart is staying open on Thanksgiving and workers are saying the company hasn't even let them know who's scheduled for the holiday yet. So the store's workers are in kind of a holiday planning limbo. The company is planning to keep its doors open from 6 a.m. on Thanksgiving Day through 10 p.m. the following day, Black Friday, but 95% of workers surveyed still don't know their own holiday oh, schedules. Man. That's according to coworker.org. Well, one of the big stories is that Kmart still exists. I did not know that. <laughs> sick, sick burn, but, sick retail burn. But um, since they do, they obviously need to be treating their workers well. And <laughs> I, know, I feel like I'm not trying We're to disrespect get so the much workers. Twitter out of this. One. <laughs> I'm not disrespecting the workers. I just didn't know Kmart still existed. Yeah. Well. Well, and, and the, for a couple of examples of how this, uh, limbo is screwing with people's lives, uh, my colleague Bryce Covert, uh, interviewed a couple of workers, one named Nick, who said, if I can't use those tickets to go down there, my, my family's just wasted 600 bucks, yeah. and I don't think Kmart's going to give me an extra $600 to give back to my family. And we're talking about low-wage workers here. This is not people necessarily working in a, 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 a she-she office environment who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars. These are people who are largely living paycheck to paycheck, who, um, don't have paid leave or paid sick days or any other basic workplace protections, but they also, in addition to having incredibly, incredibly low wages, are facing this not just around the holidays when it is most uh, upsetting and, and heartbreaking, but also they often don't know their schedules in advance generally, right? right? right. And that's a that's a growing trend with low wage work. This, but this, you know, especially around the holidays, is really really sad. And yeah. This is something where you know we have debates about different job quality policies. Mm-hmm. We you know we debate minimum wage, we debate um, access to health care, we to paid leave, all of these different things. This is a no cost solution. It's something easy. If we have predictive scheduling, this is something that will be extremely beneficial for workers, for families, and it won't cost employers anything. It often actually is more valuable for employers to have predictive scheduling. Yeah. I think the way they think about it is that it's it's maximizing and exploiting, of course, but right. maximizing the productivity of their workforce by basically treating them like cogs in right. a wheel because they can say, oh, I'm going to put you wherever is most efficient for me and you know whatever uh, based on when I think the most customer 
customers are going to be there and, and right. so forth. Right. But as you point out, what it does is it erodes morale and it creates all sorts of turnover, which have other costs that they're not thinking right. about. Exactly. And that stuff, that stuff all trickles, that all, that all rolls downhill from the boardroom where the obsession over quarterly reports and what, what are we going to tell the shareholders and stuff, that breeds a mentality about labor where instead of viewing workers as a resource uh, and an, an investment in delivering products and services to your customers, you treat them as uh, a cost to be to be squeezed as tightly as possible. And uh, so uh, we've we've been doing a lot of coverage every Thanksgiving season of the various uh, brands that are either doing sort of senseless things or or sensible things around Thanksgiving. Um, and and Bryce, my colleague, has been has been all over that stuff. And I encourage people to go to the site and check it out because there are uh, a number of stores that have announced that they're going to close for Thanksgiving. There are a couple of others uh, that have said they're going to stay open, but we're not exactly sure when. Um, and then there's REI, which actually decided to close on Black Friday, which is Kudos. the, yeah. the, the, sort of the biggest REI. day for retail stores. They're, they're just shutting up shop entirely and encouraging people to get outside instead. Retail companies that forced workers to come in on Thanksgiving Day itself don't have a whole lot to show for it. I think we talked about this uh, a week ago, or maybe two weeks ago, um, that there are a couple of companies, including Kmart and The Gap and Sports Authority and Macy's and Target and Walmart and a couple of others, that were planning to actually open on Thanksgiving Day, not just on really early on Black Friday, that they were going to open up that evening, um, or in some cases even afternoon. But uh, we now have sales numbers in for Thanksgiving and Black Friday, both. So a couple things. First, overall sales for the two days combined were down about 1.5% compared to last year. Um, and second, the 11 companies that opened their doors on the holiday itself uh, took in just $1.8 billion in revenue in that in that uh, that time on the holiday, uh, that's obviously a lot of money for you or me, but it's tiny compared to the 10.4 billion that shoppers spent in physical stores on Black Friday itself, without needing anybody to skip their sweet potato pie and come man a cash register. And not just skip their sweet potato pie, glib as I know you're trying to be, right? I mean, <laughs> part of what made us so angry two weeks ago when we talked about Kmart, um, it, it's not just about opening, right? Some of these businesses actually decided not just to stay open on things. Thanksgiving and to screw their workers in that way, but to not even give them notice of what their schedules were going to be in advance. So this right. kind of schedule unpredictability that we talk about periodically on this show that is afflicting low-wage workers in particular and has become the new way of uh, the low-wage economy um, and has enabled employers to, to basically suck every last uh, you know drop of, of uh, productivity out of their workers, or so it would seem, because it's about making sure that they can plug them in like cogs in a wheel when whenever it's profitable for them, right. is really kind of grinding them into the floor. And it is so especially heartless around the holidays. So not only did they not give people Kmart, give people notice of whether they were going to be working so they could plan and be with their families, um, but and not only did they stay open, um, but they also didn't even make all that much money right. from it. Right. So just unbelievable. It's it's, yeah, people were sort of chasing, chasing their own tails in a way that uh. doesn't seem really to be worth it.
Obviously, this is an economic debate, and you're going to see all kinds of numbers thrown around. But it seems to me that underlying that economic issue is a basic conflict over values, really. On one side of that values debate, people are saying it's obvious. Everybody should be entitled to a minimum wage, a wage that they can live on. But on the other side, people say there's a fundamental value that has to do with the rights of individuals to decide for themselves. People are smart enough to know whether they want to take a job or whether they don't want to take a job because it pays too little. And they certainly don't need any nanny state telling them what the job should pay. Ed, Peter, my sense is there's a very long history to that latter position, the right to contract with your employer. Why don't we take a few minutes and explore that history? Hey, Brian, it's American history, okay? Oh, darn. (laughs) You know, the Declaration of Independence, consent, the social contract, that basic idea that a republic is based on contracting, consenting individuals who are fully independent and capable of expressing their will. And that notion is so fundamental, and it happens to coincide, map neatly onto conceptions of market behavior in a truly free market. Now, that's a problematic concept or construct, but I think that reinforcement of the political character of the regime based on consent and contract and the way we make deals in marketplaces, well, it seems fundamental. And let me add just one thing, uh, and that is overthrowing the British state was supposedly overthrowing monopoly, aristocracy, guilds, all kinds of privileged interference in political and economic life. So I I think we, we start with that original, I'll call it a fundamental distortion, because we're not looking at the thing itself. We're not looking at the terms of work. What we're looking at is this big relationship we have with government, with a capital G, with the state, and that interferes with all of our thinking about wealth distribution and wages. Yeah, 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 Peter, you call it sort of a distortion or whatever, but I'd like to suggest that it actually seemed to be a very organic outgrowth of the American experience, right? So after you guys throw off the British yoke, which for which we're very grateful there in the 18th century, mm-hmm. in the 19th century we go, all right, now, if it's great to have contract and freedom, let's try to extend it to every facet of life, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's, and uh, basically that's the story of the first several decades of the new American nation for economics and politics is that at the same time the government has helped us expand to the West and removing Indians. Back in the developed economies of the East, we're saying, great, get the government out of this, no special provisions for any particular business. You know, the significant thing is that the language of anti-aristocracy, anti-monopoly survives from before the American Revolution. And so you're carrying on that same notion. Maybe I shouldn't have said distortion. I'll say an enduring idea about the nature of the state and a fear for the loss of liberty that's so deeply embedded in the American psyche. Okay, I get the uh, anti-monopoly, knocking down privilege, but... What about the privilege of owning slaves and paying them no wages whatsoever, Ed? You know, and I say this not just to adroitly uh, dodge your question. It actually is key to this entire question. Mm-hmm. Is the very prevalence of slavery over a large part of the American nation that makes everyone who's not in slavery. They're free. <laughs> <laughs> they're free. And what are they free to do, Brian? They are free to contract, to sell their labor. Uh, right? It's really interesting. And, and so the entire Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln is built around this idea of 
We are free labor. We're either free to work for ourselves because we own our own land, or we are free to enter into contracts and withdraw from them as we wish. We're the opposite of slaves. And matter of fact, that is probably the one vocabulary that working people and employers in the North can agree upon that would bind the North together. It's not slavery. And goes into the Civil War precisely because the South and its slavery is a violation of that, not only for the enslaved people, they say, but for the white people in the South who are prevented from living in a land that's ruled by contract. And, and that's what I meant by distorting, and that is the yeah, powerful I'm, effect of this kind of black and white binary of slavery and freedom. No nuance in this analysis, and the nuance that's lost is the possibility that the state could intervene for benign purposes. Well, if you want nuance, I've got a bunch of it for you. Okay, <laughs> because on, this Ed. is what happens when and the Civil War ends and slavery ends, and suddenly the white North gets its dream of an entire nation ruled by contract. But what do you do when there are workers who own nothing but the shirts on their backs? Right. And you have landowners, the former masters, who own everything else. Can you have anything that looks like freedom of contract? And so the Civil War should have been a great victory for the forces of freedom. Uh, right. For free labor, but this is also, of course, a great period of capital formation, industrialization, and uh, the terms of work are no longer as favorable as they used to be. Yeah, as these corporations just get bigger and bigger and they can draw on an infinite pool of labor and they have all these immigrants coming in and they can run shifts and all these kinds of things, it just seems to play havoc with the principles for which the North went to war only 30 years earlier. Yet at that very moment, it seems that's when the courts intervene and pronounce this theory of liberty of contract. And it's as late as 1905 in the Lochner decision that the court says, hey, New York State can't limit the number of hours that men in bakeries work because that violates their ability to contract for their own labor. 1905. So uh, <laughs> be careful what you wish for, because those ideas were really powerful, and they did get imbibed by the court. But just as the reality on the ground was changing, the courts came and said, nope, you know, people have to be able to make their own deals, even though it was becoming increasingly absurd, the notion that an individual could make a deal with Andrew Carnegie or with Rockefeller. And Brian, I think that goes right back to the question that you began this segment with. Why are skeptics today so skeptical of this idea about a minimum wage? Yeah. It's because they're drawing on a very deep well of indigenous American thinking that for a while described the reality of American life and ever since has still been a cherished dream even right. as the material conditions yeah. change. I think it still defines the aspirations for many Americans when you talk about freedom and liberty. You don't want to think that you're enabled to uh, pursue your happiness or that the happiness is going to be provided by the state. You want to think it comes from you. And you want to believe that you're dealing with an individual not with some multinational corporation. And that is the very reason that the language that you use at the beginning, Brian, is the language that critics of this use, nanny state. Because what it's suggesting is that you are not enough of an individual to stand up for yourself. And that if you want a higher wage, just go somewhere else and get it. You don't need the government handing you something. So it strikes me we're likely to have this debate with us for quite a while. It's what America's all about. Well, I never needed his strength more. 
We've been talking a lot in terms of technology about automation recently as well. I told you about the Chinese factory, which, by automating most of their processes, dropped from 650 employees to only 60 employees. McDonald's is well on the way to the same thing. They have installed some self-serve computerized kiosks in more and more stores, including some in New York City. There was this question of whether. The increased minimum wage in New York City would cause companies like McDonald's to want to automate. Obviously, the kiosks are already installed. The minimum wage has not yet increased, so it's abundantly clear that McDonald's has been developing these for several years. It could be, aside from all of the other sidebar conversations regarding minimum wage, etc., could be just a good business decision. According to the Harvard Business Review, customers using tech devices like Taco Bell's app and McDonald's kiosks usually spend more money on average than when they order from a human being. Now, part of that could be the novelty, right? If you have a normal, if the normal order at McDonald's is five dollars, and the average kiosk order is six dollars. It might be because when somebody is experiencing the novelty of this kiosk, they like the idea of tapping more stuff to customize or, or grow their order. Once the kiosks become sort of part of the status quo, we'll have to see if the larger order amounts、uh, maintain there. But the other advantage, apparently, for McDonald's is that a 2011 study found that these self-service kiosks reduce order times compared to dealing with human beings. So. There's a lot of of data that is really suggesting this is the wave of the future. We are seeing it in factory settings. We've already talked about how the idea of manufacturing jobs coming back to the U.S. is basically completely bogus. Not so much because it's unlikely that a new president will secure a great trade deal to bring those jobs back, but because those jobs have disappeared in great part because of automation. We're going to continue seeing that. Even Mitt Romney was aware of the touchtone keypad, as he called it, for ordering sandwiches at Wawa during his last campaign. And I think the big picture on this is really very clear. I don't think anyone is surprised that the job of taking orders at a fast food restaurant is not going to be an enduring job for the human race as technology continues to advance. The real question, and I've Said this a lot lately because we've been talking about automation and technology. The real question when we talk about a story like this is how will we as humans respond and adjust society for this wave of automation that is coming? Will we allow huge unemployment to happen and say we don't need we don't need people we don't need a ton of people doing anything at all, or will we say this is an opportunity? This is a huge opportunity. For humans, as as a as a race, the human race, to reorganize our assumptions that have been true over the last several hundred years with regard to the relationship of people to work, let's reorganize in a way to really scale up the productivity of our society as a whole. When we have 
a presidential election every four years and you have presidential politics the way we have it and you have the influence of corporations the way we have it, those are all going to be impediments to making positive changes in this regard. That's what makes me skeptical. But that is really the question that I think we're facing over the next 10 to 20 years along the lines of technological automation. It was automation, I know. That was what was making the factory go. It was IBM. It was Univac. It was all those gears going clickety-clack. Dear, I thought automation was keen till you were replaced by a 10-ton machine. It was that computer that tore us apart, dear. Automation broke my heart. As we return to my conversation with Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stiglitz, author of Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy and Agenda for Growth and Shared Prosperity, I asked him about the 2016 presidential race and began by playing uh, Stiglitz, a clip of Republican contender Donald Trump calling Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders a communist and a maniac. I watched Hillary last night with, we're going to give this, we're going to give that, we're going to give that. She's the poor woman. She's got to give everything away because this maniac that was standing on her right is giving everything away. So she's following. That's what's happening. This socialist slash communist. Okay. Nobody wants to say it. That's Donald Trump on Bernie Sanders. Um, explain what Bernie Sanders represents. First, let me comment. You know, with the great irony of that is he's he's talking about Bernie Sanders and Hillary's putting pro- programs that don't add up, and he's called for a tax cut aimed at the rich that is one trillion dollars short. So you talk about somebody who and is... And he said he'd make his, the hedge fund um, guys um, pay. That's right. No, that's one good thing that he's done. And, and uh, that, that the irony is that the, people, the hedge fund guys are taxed at a lower rate than people who, were, you know, who are actually working for a living. It's one of the real, uh, you might say, uh, anomalies of our uh, tax system. One that is actually very costly to our economy, not just in terms of lost revenue, but induces our best students, my best students, to go into finance mm-hmm. and to speculation. And we're wasting our most valuable resource, I think, our human resources. When instead you would like to see them? Uh, go into research, go into cre- you know, creating productive firms, you know, uh, strengthening the productive capacity of our economy. You know, the fact that so, such a large fraction of our most talented young people go into finance is a worry. It should be a worry to, you know, we, we've really lost a balance. Now, to come back to Bernie uh, and Hillary, you know, what they're, what they're both saying is uh, really points that we raise in rewriting the rules. They're saying, it's not, these are not giveaways. We're saying something is wrong with the way our economy is working. The fact that at the bottom, minimum wage is as low as it was 45 years ago, a half century ago, 
says something. An economy that, you know, we're supposed to have, we've had technological change, globalization, all these things which are supposed to make our economy better and stronger, and yet, at the bottom, they haven't had a pay raise in a half century. It's not a living wage. So that's, there, that's all he's calling for. You know, he's calling for uh, uh, a living wage for uh, ordinary Americans. And they're both calling for, we're a wealthy enough economy that we should be able to provide the basic requisites of a middle-class lifestyle for all Americans. Earlier this month, uh, Democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders was asked if a socialist could ever win a general election in the United States. This was in the debate. Well, we're going to win because first we're going to explain what democratic socialism is. And what democratic socialism is about is saying that it is immoral and wrong that the top one-tenth of one percent in this country own almost 90 percent, almost own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. That it is wrong today in a rigged economy that 57% of all new income is going to the top 1%. That when you look around the world, you see every other major country providing health care to all people as a right, except the United States. You see every other major country saying to moms that when you have a baby, we're not going to separate you from your newborn baby because we are going to have, we are going to have medical and family paid leave like every other country on earth. Those are some of the principles that I believe in. And I think we should look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway and learn from what they have accomplished for their working people. That's Democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton weighed in in the same CNN debate. When I think about capitalism, I think about all the small businesses that were started because we have the opportunity and the freedom in our country for people to do that and to make a good living for themselves and their families. And I don't think we should confuse what we have to do every so often in America, which is save capitalism from itself. And I think what Senator Sanders is saying certainly makes sense in the terms of the inequality that we have. But we are not Denmark. I love Denmark. We're the United States of America, and it's our job to rein in the excesses of capitalism so that it doesn't run amok and doesn't cause the kind of inequities that we're seeing in our economic system. So that's Hillary Clinton. You advise Hillary Clinton? I talked to her, yes. So her response, we're not Denmark, as a put-down to Bernie Sanders. Uh, Well, we're, we're... It's a fact we are not Denmark, but the question is whether the United States is rich enough to be able to make sure that everyone has a basic right to health care, family leave, parental, you know, uh, sick leave. We are exceptional. Uh, whether we are a society that can tolerate, that should tolerate the levels of inequality that we have, uh, I think Bernie Sanders is right about that. And, and I think that we, uh, Hillary is right that we, uh, one of the strengths of America should be that we can give opportunity for small businesses. Uh, actually, Denmark and Norway do that as well. So, there, what, what I would say is that Bernie is absolutely right that, uh, the providing the basic necessities of a middle class society, 
should be the right of everybody in our country. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight, strike, vote. The Fight for 15 voter pledge. The Fight for 15 campaign has had a busy year with wins in Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, and with measures before city councils and on ballots to raise the minimum wage. While $15 an hour is still short of a true living wage, it is more than double the federal rate of $7.25 an hour, which no one, single or supporting family, can live on in any corner of the country. It also keeps the pressure on places like Rhode Island and Maryland, which recently enacted increases that fall short of $15. According to Michelle Chin's reporting at The Nation, almost half of all American workers make less than $15 an hour. As the movement has gotten increasingly intersectional, emphasizing the disproportionate effect on women and people of color, they have also gotten more political. Strikes last month ahead of Black Friday and the launch of the holiday shopping season featured workers declaring... Come get my vote. Now you can add your support to their campaign. At fightfor15.org, you'll find the Fight for 15 Voter Pledge created with the SEIU. It states, quote, I'm ready to join millions of Americans to build a better future for everyone who works. I pledge to vote for candidates who support the Fight for 15 voter agenda in 2016, unquote. That agenda includes... $15 an hour and union rights, affordable child care, quality long-term care, addressing racism towards black America, and immigration reform. With the holidays around the corner, it's also a good time to remind people to shop locally and use hashtag shop local to post on social media when you frequent places in your community. If you need to shop at a big box store, and lots of us have to because of limited finances, you can use the Think Progress guide to the segment notes to see which stores force their employees to work on the holidays and which give them time off with their families. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting the fight for a living wage matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Fight for 15 voter pledge via social media so that others in your network can show their support too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Is your job literally killing you? There's a question we have to ask, there's a study at Harvard and... Stanford University. <laughs> Thank you. Um, he went uh, where people in some parts of the U.S. live as many as 33 years longer on average than people in other parts of the country. Um, and they want to say, what part of your workplace and your work environment as cross-reference against your level of education 
does that, how does that affect your, your, uh, your lifespan? Um, so men and women with fewer than 12 years of education had life expectancies that were still on par with most adults in the 1950s and 60s, which means that, I don't know, they lived less time. <laughs> That's true. Is uh, scientifically how you put it. People with the highest educational attainment, which is 17 years and over, and over had only 5 to 10% of their mortality associated with harmful workplace practices compared to 10 or 12 to 19% of those with the least education. So your level of education has to do with uh, affecting where you're going to end up working. Mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe you're in a factory and you, you have a l larger likelihood to get crushed by something or an industrial accident. It always weirds me out when I drive by a place that says, like, it's been 30 days since our last accident. Yeah. That's terrible. That's serious. serious. It's real. Um, blacks and Hispanics lost more years of life because of work than whites did in every education and gender category. Women generally fared better than their male counterparts. It's the only part of the workplace where they do benefit. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> There's, uh, let's look at a chart, shall we? Because this is a study. Um, Twelve years or fewer, wow. you'll just see that the higher the number, the more life is lost. Um, and on the left of those two halves, you see the 17 or more years of education. Uh, on the right, you see 12 or fewer years um, oh, and wow. men, it's disproportionate to women, and still, the less education you have, the more. Here's the largest. What's the thing? racial difference between men and women? No, weird. Right. That was weird. We can, we can have sort of an open debate about how much the government should be trying to get involved in fixing this, and I, I don't know if it's a government thing, but it definitely should be a social thing. It should be an American thing to see that how much education you have has this much of a direct impact, even controlling for things like health insurance and stuff mm -hmm. of that sort. That should be that should be a national shame. We should we should realize that we've left behind a huge number of people, and unfortunately, we live in a country where at least half of the voters think oh, they're poor. They didn't go to school. Fuck them. They didn't work as hard. And that we have a political ideology that literally is telling people that morality should be correlated with how much you make. That if you're rich, you are a better person. You worked harder. You lifted yourself up. And if you're poor. Well, then you, you put yourself in this position. You deserve your fate. Is that, you, have, you have stats to back that up? Yeah. That's a to back up what? That, what you just said. That's really the, the case? Well, about the morality? Yeah. I don't have stats here, but that's, but like a, that's said, a large part of what my graduate work was under. It was the development of ideological systems and the correlation between... Uh, basically, conservative and liberal ideology have to do with conceptions of the perfect family. And we have these metaphors for morality that are tied in with things like economic upbringing... Uh, I mean, I could talk about this for like an hour or two, or I could actually send you some of the studies. That yeah, I, send that me some of the studies, because um, I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Don't we put no, mor but, moral virtue on education, too, not to cut you off? But don't we mm -hmm. do that as well, not just money? But, course, yeah. but if you have this certain education, then you, you deserve a better life. It, it's, I mean, some, like Rick Santorum, they, they question people who mm -hmm. spend too much time in college. But, I mean, you can see this every day, on, like if you don't want to have to read all of my writing, you can see this on O'Reilly every day. If you are on welfare, if you're on a social program, you're a bad person. You're a lazy person. You're a deadbeat. And we accept this largely, like we criticize it here on this program. But you're allowed to say that poor people are lazy, that they're not doing what they need to do to, to succeed. It doesn't matter if they've had medical emergencies that have bankrupted them or if they're currently working three or four jobs. They're lazy, bad people. They're suspicious. They're probably criminals. We see these things all the time. And that is, that is the manifestation of the moral... The moral attack, I think, on being poor, on being downtrodden, on being sick. Even all linguistically. These, even linguistically. Yeah. A lot of the, the You need words. to stand up. 
it's like there's like an elevation, you know, you don't want to be down low. Like we have these ideas metaphorically of what it is to be moral and what it is to be immoral. Right. But linguistically like poor meaning you don't have money, but also things that are poor quality, things that are poorly They're lit, bad. poorly done or bad. Yeah. Um, means. People who are in the mean. It's, you're a mean person. I don't know. That's all I <laughs> chunk. I don't know if that one works out, but I like that's the That's a Chomsky one. bullshit. Um, anyhow, uh, let's focus on... But yeah, I, I don't know. I, part of me, though, when I read this study, I was like, ah, there are certain stressful jobs. A lot of these things, the largest influence, if we have this graphic, on mortality, uh, largest influencers are unemployment and layoffs, lack of health insurance, low mm -hmm. job control, job insecurity for men, and shift work for women. Yeah. Uh, so there's two things we can boil it down to. One is workplace standards. We need higher workplace standards. You c can you get away from the fact that people with lower uh, education are going to be use, uh, employed in more unskilled labor. Can you ever get away from that? No. Well, you can try to make it so that being in a place that that generally has people who are unskilled doesn't have to be unsafe. Exactly. I mean, that's what OSHA that's exactly, is about. That's exactly what we need to do. Yeah. So that it. But doesn't doesn't everybody? Okay, I'm not to cut down your point, but don't we all have a have an element of work stress to us? All of us. Do. Oh, absolutely, and that goes to another Same point, thing. which is like uh, I, I when I think of like people who are stressed at work and stress being an issue. I think of like Wall Street bankers also who are highly educated people who have heart attacks. <laughs> mm -hmm. And as much as you want to say like, hey, dude, you can go sleep it off in your million dollar mansion. Like I know a lot of those people and they're super stressed out and they work and in their mind that we're working and we're getting paid. High suicide rate. Want. Yeah. High suicide rate. Yeah. So I just yeah. think that like doing it by education, we when we look at a study like this, I, I like to focus on like, oh, where can we improve? I think one thing clearly what we can do is focus on like workplace standards and making it so Definitely. but some places are inherently more dangerous than yeah. others yeah and by the way i don't think it's a coincidence that the side i mean you can disagree with my view of, of the correlation between ideology and these views of the poor but that the same side that i would say regularly demonizes the poor also thinks that businesses should self-regulate when it comes to safety standards and things of that sort they yeah, don't want osha they don't want any of that um i was going to disagree oh oh yeah so the difference between uh the stress so it is true that when you think of stress, you might think of the lawyer who suddenly is a partner, he's working 90 hours, or a stock trader, and they're yelling and everything. And that's true, but I think I can say, even from my own experience, I grew up quite poor. Uh, my parents never had more than a semester of college. There's stress and there's stress. Here at TYT, we have times that are very stressed. And I have lots of papers, and I don't know if I'm going to be prepared for the show and everything. But right now, I'm not worried about having food or health insurance. And so that, that, that stock trader or whatever, he's going really fast, but he gets to go home. And he's not going to have to worry about a medical emergency. Mm. And his kids are going to have clothing. And so I think that when you're working the, the fast food jobs to take care of your kids, and you may be doing it without a partner, that's a different sort of stress. You're both having to go, go, go. And you know that if you don't, you could lose everything. to the last episode about one uh, one hour, ten minutes, thirty seconds in, you describe basically what equate to the petri dish <clears throat> that police work is that sort of to extend the metaphor perfectly cultures the bacteria of white supremacy that already exists in our society because what we see every day and I have never heard a better explanation 
for what I've seen in my career and, and the, the way that the people around me reacted. And I guess I'm lucky that I can, I was at least brought up a Kennedy liberal and kind of was able to resist that sort of experience and I uh, was able to recognize when I was feeling those sorts of pulls towards that bias and, and identified it as what was happening and sort of recognized it myself. But a lot of us aren't that fortunate to, to have that presence of mind, I guess. So anyway, I'm going to steal that. That was an excellent description. So uh, it doesn't excuse any of the behavior, but it definitely might help people understand why some cops are the way they are. I'm not excusing them either. But yeah, thanks, man. That was fantastic. Thanks. Later. Hey, Jay, this is Matt in Pennsylvania. I um, just got done listening to the last episode, and I got to say, man, uh, although I'm usually firmly uh, planted on your side when the, the Wayne phone call discussions come up, this round has been uh, definitely interesting. You played Wayne's Wade's call and then uh, followed with Elko who accused him of being racist, but then you pulled back and said that, that uh, Wade wasn't really being racist and you thought there was a disconnect in their communication there. And then you doubled down by playing William's call, who basically called Wade a flaming racist. And Wade never said put gun men with guns, white people with guns in schools with black kids. That was not, it just, it never came out that way. And I, I disagree with you. I don't think it was implied. I think you need to understand, I, I think maybe there's a, a, a disconnect between uh, life experience, perhaps. Perhaps the side that is not Wade's is coming from a, a more urban school uh, history, a, a history where there were more of a mixed population and where there was uh, oppression by white cops on black kids. I get the feeling that Wade comes from a situation similar to my own where I grew up in a small town and uh, I don't know if people in general are aware, but cops have been in schools, in white suburban schools, for 20 years or more now, originally put in response to not wanting to let the teachers, basically when, when they stopped having corporal punishment in schools as a regular occurrence, they realized that they were taking that that tool. I'm not I'm not defending it. I'm just saying they were taking that that away from the teachers and and, and the principals, and so they needed some kind of a recourse that was a next something beyond a detention and a suspension. So they started hiring off duty cops to come in and be a representation of law enforcement. Uh, you know, as that next level. And I think over the over the two decades or so, you know, that familiarity between the off-duty police or the hired police at this point and the students has probably changed that dynamic significantly. But all I'm saying is I think uh, probably Wade was brought up in a school tradition where the implications and the foundations of that are completely different than uh, what you and, and William and Elka are attesting to. That's not to say that that you're wrong. I, I don't think either of you are necessarily wrong. I think you're just coming at the argument from two different places. And uh, I think uh, it, it's a little unfair to try and put any words or thoughts in his head or to say that he's responsible for issues that may be attached to an issue that, that he's misunderstanding at this point. And, and, and I, I would just... Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm generally not uh, ready to jump on here and, and defend Wade, but I, I think his I think his his uh, intentions are pure, uh, and his his direction is 
is probably being misunderstood. So take care. Uh, wish you all well. Love you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So much to get to today. Let's see if I can squeeze it all in. First of all, in response to the second voicemail we heard, his, the caller's basic point was uh, Wade's comments about cops in schools wasn't racist. He wasn't saying anything explicitly racist. He wasn't trying to be racist. So it's unfair to then say that what he said had racial uh, undertones or overtones or what he was saying was implied as racism. And that was basically what my commentary in the previous episode was entirely dedicated to. The idea that you can say racist stuff without meaning to at all. You could be a hundred percent opposed to any racist idea whatsoever, but if you are supporting a system that is inherently racist, then you are supporting a racist system. That's a white supremacist thing to do, even if you don't mean to do it at all. That's what I meant, and that is how I interpreted uh, William Jackson's comments, uh, who you know came after Wade pretty strong on, on the issue. I still didn't interpret what William was saying as you know, Wade, you're an out-and-out racist. I just interpret it as you're supporting a racist system. So hopefully that clarifies it. I I feel like if you need more clarification, you should just go back and listen to my comments from yesterday. Uh, Secondly, today, uh, John emailed in about uh, how Amazon hurts small businesses in reaction uh, because a caller had called in, asked, hey, what's wrong with Amazon? I gave a couple of reasons, uh, but not this one. So John filled in this gap. So referring to the original caller asking the question, John writes, he suggested that Amazon allows small businesses to find customers in a much larger market because Amazon is a central location where everyone knows to go and Amazon search functionality is incredible. So it's giving them more customers, not less, implying that even though big boxes first killed the small retail shop opener and then Amazon took the big boxes on and became the ultimate box, it's all okay because they created something better. Here's the thing. That makes the assumption that small retailers were selling unique items. They weren't. The tiny local electronics or hardware store down the street was selling all the same stuff as the next town store. What made this model work was that every town could have their own store selling the same stuff and geographical distance created separate markets, creating a lot of middle-class people not one giant Bezos monster. Amazon is great for small manufacturers of goods or collectors of rare items, like the caller mentioned, but not for small business owners. They were wiped out and went to work at Home Depot well past their goal for retirement and for much less money. What Amazon does is connect giant manufacturing conglomerates with customers, bypassing the middle-class creating small store owners altogether. So excellent point. I, I completely missed that one uh, when I gave my original, uh, you know, set of ideas on problems with Amazon. That was an excellent addition. And if you'd like some alternate shopping ideas, shopping online, uh, here's a list for you: Powell Books, Better World Books, Viva Terra, Etsy, Ten Thousand Villages, eBay, Terra Experience, World Finds, Indigenous. Maggie's Organics, and Equal Exchange. If you need to hear that again, just rewind and listen again. And now, 
A second email came in. Excellent comments. Uh, this one is about not shaming people who shop on Black Friday. This is from Emma. She writes, Black Friday wasn't just awful to work. I've worked a few because of violent customers. Management, especially out of store management, would actually actively encourage the capitalist feeding frenzy. They would tell us to periodically make announcements that certain things were running out without even checking to see if they were, just to promote panic. You'd either have to engage in the most licentious kind of manipulation or risk being disciplined. Black Friday makes or breaks a lot of stores. What we need is a transfer of power to the workers who ultimately respect the customers far more than the corporations. At the end of the day, support for retail unions, alternative work structures like cooperatives, and stronger regulations by the government are far more helpful than an individual choice to participate in Black Friday or not. Because you can't outmaneuver capitalism. Unlike human beings, capitalism only has one loyalty, and that is to profits. If you stop Black Friday, capitalism will create Terrible Thursday, or Suffering Sunday, or whatever go-around it needs to keep capital flowing. To stop the kind of horrors we see on Black Friday, we need to stop capitalism itself. And I am totally on board with not shaming people for the way they act on Black Friday or just if they go shopping at all, uh, whether they engage in the panic or not. Um, it is much more effective to shame the system that those people are reacting to. I mean, it, it, frankly, it's just like Wade's comments about cops in school. I wasn't criticizing uh, Wade as an individual for his comments or calling Wade as an individual a racist or a white supremacist. I was saying that his comments are reflective of a system that is racist and white supremacist. So in both of these cases, it is far more effective to criticize the system rather than the individual. I'm totally on board in both cases. And that emailer's comment about the need to shift power to the workers leads me right to the next comment. Uh, someone who, sorry, I'm, the name is not in front of me at the moment, but they posted on uh, Facebook, and I'll paraphrase, that she was saying that the whole idea of making sure businesses close down for holidays to let people go be with their families is not entirely beneficial because some people who work at those stores would actually rather have the extra hours, especially if you get holiday pay, where you get paid time and a half uh, of your regular wage. And she talked about how, you know, when she was younger and needed the money, she's like, no, I, I was asking for those holiday hours. So don't tell all these companies to close their stores because some people are going to need those hours. They're going to want those hours. And, uh, you know, so th there are arguments on both sides. It, it Basically, the fact that people need those holiday hours is sort of indicative of the fact that they don't get paid enough on a regular basis or that they have these erratic schedules where they're sort of scrambling to get as many hours as they can. And like, it would be better if we could fix that or have, uh, you know, a much heftier social safety net, like a, you know, minimum basic income or, you know, a job guarantee or something like that that sort of creates an environment in which people don't want those ho uh, those holiday hours. But my main point was about the need to shift power, uh, uh, you know, away from a hi hierarchical system to a worker-owned system because a company owner is sort of in a no-win situation. If they close the store, well, then this woman commenting on Facebook is going to say, well, that's not fair because some people need those hours. They they want that, uh, those wages. 
And if they decide to keep the store open, well, then they're tyrants keeping people away from their families. And so, you know, you're not going to win everyone over in either situation. Whereas if what you have is a worker owned and directed co-op where everyone decides collectively and democratically whether or not to stay open on the holidays, well, then everyone has buy-in to it. And so if a, a co-op decides to stay open and an employee of that company ends up needing to work on that holiday, well, then at least it doesn't feel like it's being imposed from above. It feels like you're working within a system that you have say in. And I think that would make all the difference in the world. And now, finally, uh, a quick update on the membership drive that's been going on. As I've said, maintaining a solid base of members for the show is core to the stability and sustainability of this show. Advertisers can come and go. Membership support is here for the long haul. At least it needs to be. So I launched you know, sort of a modest campaign to bolster our lagging membership numbers. And I've been trying to get just a total of a hundred new signups before the holiday break that starts in about three weeks. Uh, the campaign is going great so far. We're more than halfway there already. Uh, we're up to 53 new signups. Remembering that, uh, you know, if you sign up at six bucks a month, that's one new membership. But if you, uh, up your comp- contribution to 10 bucks a month, then that counts as two signups and so on. Uh, so again, thanks to all of those who helped kick off this campaign. Uh, I have new names for you, new signups who have come in. There were a couple of business accounts that came in, but then all of these were just individuals. Flynn, uh, Bertha really stepped up uh, with a very generous monthly donation. Kyle, very excited to say that Kyle was successfully uh, shamed into becoming a member, Kyle from Vancouver. Kelly, Matt, Andrea, Conda, Kathleen, and Nancy all signed up as members. And a couple of honorable mentions, Jervin and Kyle signed up, uh, not as full members, but just tossing in what they could, you know, a couple of bucks, two or three bucks, and it is all welcome. That absolutely helps the show. I, I would far rather have an enormously broad base of supporters who all give $1 a month than, you know, just a few people who give a whole lot. So if you can only afford, you know, a buck or two, by all means, it is more than welcome. And then uh, more uh, honorable mentions, Elaine, Sarah, Walt, Catherine, and Chris all just made one-time donations. Just like, hey, you know, this is what I can give. Here's a, here's a chunk of change. And that is absolutely uh, welcome, of course, and appreciated as well. So the running total, as I said, is up to 53 signups, three weeks to go. If you want to join the effort, simply sign up to contribute at the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Keep in mind that there is now an alternate to PayPal you can use. Details are on the page. And finally, one last reminder that today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm, the brand new app that's changing podcasting. is like Netflix, but for podcasts. Howl Premium gets you exclusive access to all kinds of things, dozens of audio documentaries, comedy albums, Mark Marin's archives, and I told you today about their interesting new mini-series, Super Ego Forgotten Classics, in which comedians reimagine classic works of literature. Get all of this with Howl Premium. Go to Howl.fm. When you sign up, use the offer code LEFT to get a full month for free. 
That's Howl.fm, H-O-W-L.fm, and use the promo code LEFT for one month free trial of Howl Premium. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who have already supported the show through the years by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're doing Can't see past all the sad stories And forget who it is we're from